And then having had moments in my life where I couldn't feel my legs, you know, so those huge turning points are like, well, why would I complain about cellulite on my legs when I can use my legs again? It is, it's such a superficial way of looking at your body. you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Amber Gwynn glows with self-confidence, but it hasn't always been this way. Bullied at school for her weight, she's tried every diet under the sun and still she hated her body. But when Amber developed multiple sclerosis, temporarily paralyzing her from the waist down, she realized how incredible her body really is and vowed to treat it with the love and respect that it deserves. This inspired her to become a passionate campaigner for self-love, and she achieves this through her non-airbrushed me Instagram account, where she posts untouched images of women of all shapes and sizes to her loyal 210,000 followers. She also has her inclusive clothing brand, Niata. She's also a model, a nurse, and a scout for leading plus-size modeling agency, Bella Management. Amber is truly inspiring women to accept and love themselves for who they are, and I'm very excited to have her on the podcast. Here she is. Thank you so much, Amber. It's so great to chat with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's an amazing thing to be meeting you today, so thank you. I'm so chuffed and, you know, (laughs) chuffed to be here, and I've been upon my research and having a look into everything you do, I've been so inspired, so I reckon a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this chat. So what I always like to do with all of my interviews, I like to go right back and just get a really good feel of what childhood was like for you. What was it like growing up for you in your household? Yeah, so I had an amazing childhood, very close family and amazing friends. And yeah, just a really normal childhood, I guess. Amazing parents, a lot of love, surrounded by a lot of love. I'm a very family orientated person, so I always had pets, you know, I'm obsessed with animals. So that's had a few dogs growing up and yeah, just at school, I I was very much an academic, you know, I was always an, a bit of an overachiever and I loved doing, my favorite subjects were like the creative ones. I hated, you know, anything like science and maths and all those <laughs> boring sort of things. So I was always been very artistic and creative. So I loved art and drama and that sort of thing. I always really enjoyed that at school. And yeah, like I've always had a lot of great social networks, great friends around me. My best friend, actually, I met in prep and Yay. she's still my best friend. That's the same as me, actually. Really? Yes. <laughs> I feel like this going to have a lot. Yeah, it's amazing. So that's yeah. like a 30-year friendship. Wow. So she's, yeah, so that's an amazing thing Absolutely. to have had a friend like mm. that for such a long time. And she's actually had a little boy just recently, Aww. so I'm a proud aunt of baby Bo. Oh, um, cute. But, yeah, just a very normal childhood. I had, we went on a lot of family holidays. Yeah. We often went up to Marimbula. I loved camping and, 
yeah, going up to the Murray actually, we used yeah. to do that quite a lot as well. So a lot of family trips and things. Did you say that your parents are from Tasmania or did you grow up in Tassie as well? No, so I grew okay. up in, in Werribee yep. and then my parents moved over to Tasmania. Mm-hmm. My mum actually got a diagnosis of cancer and they wanted a fresh start mm-hmm. and, you know, Tassie is such a beautiful part of the world, as you know. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, gorgeous, just clean air and yeah. fresh food and just beautiful. Best produce. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they moved over there after that and they've sort of stayed there for a number of years So yeah. and base themselves there and then they just travel around and, yeah. Oh, lovely. And is your mum better now? Yeah, she's amazing. Oh. So she... Yeah, she's in remission. And yes. Yeah. Okay. So she's doing oh, well. Oh, good. That's yeah. good to hear because yeah. that that's a frightening period. When I was doing my research, I noticed that you'd spoken a little bit about when you were a teenager, mm. you'd experienced some um, shaming of your body. Mm. Can you talk us a little bit through that, about that? Yeah, so I've, I've always been a bigger person. Like I was born that way. I, I often say actually with my movement, non-airbrush me, when I was born, my mum was offered from the photographer who took photos of me, the professional photos, to airbrush out my baby fat rolls. What? <laughs> my son was very chubby as a baby. Like, yeah. that's just what babies are. And it's gorgeous. Yeah, and it's like, of course. It's, it's healthy. And, yeah. So I was, I've always been a bigger, you know, all throughout my childhood. And my mum explains when I was, you know, when I was younger that, even though like I was always on a big, you know, like chubbier side, I guess, it never affected me. Like it never got in the way of me just getting out there and just enjoying playing with other kids and that sort of thing. So then hitting high school and dealing with, I guess, becoming a woman and the, <laughs> all the issues that you sort of experience mm. in that respect. Yeah, and just high school bullies really. Mm. So just tackled a bit of bullying in terms of my weight and and that sort of thing and yeah it wasn't it, I wouldn't say it was it was extreme but it certainly did have an impact on how I viewed my body. So how did it make you feel? It just made me feel like, for example, you know, you go through those high school times and you go shopping with your girlfriends and they are a bit thinner than you and things weren't fitting like they did on them and that those sort of experience didn't make me feel very good and yeah I guess the bullies they were just I guess weren't just attacking me though that's the thing and that's how I see bullies in general these days even on social media now it's it's people that have their own insecurities and they project them onto other people it probably took a while to come to that realization though I'm you know when we're teenagers or even you know as as adults Mm. we think it's about us when really it's about them what kinds of you if you feel comfortable talking about what Mm. kinds of things would they say or do oh just you know, call you fatty or mm, things like God. that. And I remember actually in year 11, I started running up and down my staircase every night and I ended up doing it a hundred times a night and Jeez. I lost 30 kilos in about eight months. Whoa. And so that was when it really hit me hard around that age because that was the time that, you you know, you're starting to go out and that sort of thing and what you're wearing and not feeling good in it. And yeah, so I lost an extreme amount of weight and kept it off for some time. And then obviously that's just naturally come back on because naturally I'm not meant to be that size. So yeah. 
And how did this, I guess, how did these teenage years and hearing, you know, having that view of yourself and hearing people say those kinds of things alter your perception of your body at that age? I wouldn't say it was so much at that age or those experiences that have led me to where I am Mm -hmm. now. I would say they contributed to it, but it certainly was more my experiences with dealing with more real stuff, with dealing with more real life events and my nursing and seeing people the way that they were being so unwell and that sort of thing that is what has been the most significant impact in terms of looking at my body in a different way. And that's something I'd love to talk about as well. You were diagnosed with MS. Yeah. How old were you? I was just turned 27. Goodness. And what does that feel like as a 27-year-old to be told you've got multiple sclerosis? Well, first of all, I'd actually been living with it undiagnosed for a number of years and so I'd had symptoms for probably five years of tingling and numbness mainly in my periphery, so in my hands and my feet, and was diagnosed with all sorts of things like viral neuritis and things like that, but not actually properly tested. So without having a formal diagnosis, me being me and very impulsive and living life to the fullest, I actually went and after I'd studied nursing, I lived in London for a couple of years and I travelled over 30 countries in wow. the time that I was there. And all the time that I was there, I actually had MS without knowing about it. So it was because my body was in a bit of shock of like, what are you doing to me? Like I, I was either working, going out partying, you know, just what you do Absolutely. over there in, in London. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so travelling, heaps, working, and it was only until I did the Trans-Mongolian Railway at home. My God. Coming home for my mum's 50th birthday actually. And I woke up after her party and I had – some vision issues in my left eye where it was quite blurry. And I thought at the time it was like a silent migraine. Yeah. And over the course of five days, it just progressively got worse to the point that I was completely blind in that eye. And it was very, very painful. So I went to the INE hospital and they pretty much said that they thought I had MS. And because I'd just come back from gallivanting around the world and being this strong independent woman I was like well I don't want to hear about it you know and nurses are renowned for this you know all right (laughs) they're sort of the ones that care for people but the last people that they care for are themselves so I actually still went to work with an eye patch on doing night duty shifts in the mother and baby unit oh my gosh yeah for a week and then I that just sort of went away because I just I just it sounds ridiculous, but I just didn't want to know about it. I didn't, I'd li- literally just come back from traveling and I just didn't want to hear or get this Especially at 27. Exactly. Like, yeah. That's the time that you think, yeah, yeah. The, the peak of your life. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so after a few months, obviously it was playing on my mind without me realizing. And I went to get out of bed one morning and I just fell flat on my face <sighs> because my legs were completely numb. Yeah. And so obviously went to the hospital and I, yeah, I remember it vividly. I was in a room by myself. It was like 11 o'clock at night and the neurologist came in with a scan of my brain and spinal cord and I had over 25 lesions on my brain and spinal cord, which had been occurring over the years of not being diagnosed properly with the condition. 
And so, yeah, experienced paralysis and significant foot drop. That was my most significant relapse and obviously got straight on to medication. I was put on Rebif, which is a, an injection, and that made me very, very unwell. I'm sure it works with certain people, okay. but different medications work for different people and it didn't work for me. It made me very unwell. And looking back at the time, I, I feel like I wasn't empowered. I was just, it was such a shock to my life that I was just accepting whatever medication was prescribed to me. Whereas these days I go in and I tell the doctor what I want, you know, mm-hmm. because it's my body mm-hmm. and I believe that it's their job to educate people and not just, you know, prescribe whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, those times were the worst times because I was on a medication that didn't work properly. I was still getting relapses. I actually went sort of cold turkey and just tried natural approaches for a year and that made me really sick as well. So I was sort of, it was sort of navigating that time of like, what does my body need? You know, obviously there's a place for Western medicine, but there's also a place for natural treatment as well. And so it, it just took time to realise that and also obviously advancements in treatment mm-hmm. to get to where I am today and what I'm on and, and living a very, very healthy, well-balanced, amazing oh, life. You're so healthy to look at. You're just, you just glow <laughs> yeah, and your eyes glow you. and your skin yeah. is beautiful and glows. So honestly would never have even known anything mm. you're saying unless you told me now yeah. or if I hadn't read about it yeah. prior. So that was about a year of feeling really unwell. Um, No, it was was a few years and that that was probably that that combined with my nursing and that experience of of just feeling, you know, and I'll tell you this situation actually. I was dating a guy at the time and he came into the hospital the day after I was diagnosed and told me that he couldn't be with someone that had a disability and broke up with me in hospital. Oh, geez. And so not only are you diagnosed with this condition, you're dealing with this heartbreak person that just said this to you so it completely shattered every type of confidence or any self-esteem that I had and I I remember my nan actually who I was very close to she passed away last year she just said to me you know I'll just do anything that I can for you to just just leave work don't go back to work Mm. until you smile again you know and she sent me down to Tasmania to be with my parents And just needed that time to heal at the time. But it was just that turning point for me. I probably would say it was two or three years of really feeling awful about myself and not having any confidence, not knowing what my life was going to entail. I actually had a block of land in Tasmania at the time and I had a a wheelchair accessible house drafted Mm. because I didn't know what my future was going Mm. to hold. And, And that's when I decided to not... You know, I could let this condition define me or I could help women never feel like I did. Yeah. Not only because of my diagnosis but because of obviously other things that had made me feel like that. So I turned, that was my turning point of like waking up one day and being like, you know what, I, I, this has happened to me for a reason and I'm going to turn it into a positive thing and I'm going to turn it into something that hopefully is going to help women or not just women but people especially living with a disability to 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 understand that it's not necessarily the end of your life and and that you can turn it into a positive thing. Can you see how people could get caught up or you could have got caught up in just giving in to the diagnosis yep. and just giving up? Absolutely. 
And I remember my neurologist, my neurologist at the time, he said that MS is such a, it's such a varied condition that affects people in very different ways. And I always say that I acknowledge that people live with this condition very differently to, to what I do, obviously. Okay. And however, my vision and my aim in my life is not to focus on it in a negative way. It's to focus it on a positive way and be that role model. So I'm living it with it in a very good way, Mm -hmm. but some people don't. But I do remember at the time that he said a lot of his patients that were very unwell with it didn't have the mental the mindset. The mental mindset or the mental strength, which is the most powerful thing in whatever you're doing, any condition that you're dealing with. My mum, for example, with her cancer, I truly believe that it was her mindset and her her mental strength that very much got her through a lot of the stuff. Mm So, yeah. Did you, and do you think that's something you've always had, a strong sense of Mm. who you were and what you wanted and mindset as well? Mm. For people that, I guess, struggle with that, what some good ways do you think that they could build that and work on that, you know, no matter what they're going through? Yeah, I think a lot of mine has come from my life experiences. Unfortunately, (laughs) life is a roller coaster. And we all are thrown, we all have to deal with lemons, really, don't yeah. we? So we're all thrown lemons and we yeah. all, that's life. So it is, I guess, looking at those things as negatives or looking at them as experiences. And I look at everything that I go through now as an experience and an opportunity to grow and learn from. And that's that's mainly how I get through stuff. That's yeah. mainly And also just appreciating the fact that, okay, this has happened to me, but it's not life or death. Mm -hmm. It is a situation that makes me feel horrible at the moment, but I'm still here to live it. I'm going to be okay. Maybe not next week, maybe not in a month, but I know I will be okay. Yeah. There was a point where doctors were considering that you might have needed a wheelchair or you yep. thought you might what what was how does that feel mentally preparing mm. yourself for something like that it wasn't that the doctors had made me feel like that it's because well first of all I was a nurse so I'd nurse people with MS who obviously the are the wor- they're in the worst case situation gosh and that's all you're exposed to the yeah. worst case yeah, yeah. And at the time, I didn't have a role model. I did not have a role model that I could really rely on and say that was living positively with it. And so I just came to my own assumptions. And I'm a, I am a very practical person. <laughs> so, yeah, I went and got an accessible house drafted up wow. in Tasmania literally three weeks after my diagnosis, like bought a house full of furniture over there that's still sitting in a garage over there, you know. So that's how I live my life. I'm like, right, this is what's happened to me and this is what I'm, you know, that's where you're going to end up. Yeah. So it was it wasn't about what people had said. It was just a it was a lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm at now is empowering people with knowledge of the fact that it is such a varied condition. Yeah. And also that there's such a stigma attached to it that people don't understand either. That yes, a lot of people who were diagnosed with it 30 years ago are in wheelchairs because the treatments weren't available then. Mm. So we've come such a long way in knowing more about it. There's still not any, which is frustrating, there's still no known cause or no known cure for this condition. 
but there's certainly a lot more understanding of the condition and a lot more awareness of it and and treatment advancements as well. What does your living with MS, what does your future look like? You know, I know it can be hard to tell, but what do you think it could mean for you? I don't actually talk about it much because I don't feel like I live with it. Yeah. So I see it's been a part of me at this that, you know, having spoken to you about my experiences, that at the time that's all that I saw myself as. I saw myself as a condition. Now I see myself as a complete woman with an amazing life and that is just a, a part of me. You know, it's a part of me that actually is a positive thing because it's turned my life around in a very positive way to give myself amazing hope for my future and excitement, actually. And it's not only the fact that this condition has empowered me to chase my dreams and just, yeah, just chase my dreams, really, which is what's happened. But it's it's also allowed me to look at my life very holistically, focus on the good people, the good people, get rid of anything toxic, any drama in my life because that's not good for anybody. It's allowed me to understand what my body needs, nurture it, to look after it with great food, exercise, that are things that will prevent more dangerous conditions in the future. And you did talk touch on how this diagnosis changed, you know, after an upbringing of, you know, being shamed of your body at school and and all what you kind of experienced and rapid weight loss and then gaining it back. But then it wasn't until this diagnosis that you finally looked at yourself differently mm-hmm. and you wanted to do something about that. When was that? Do you remember that change? Do you recall that moment? And what did you decide to do with that? Yeah, I think that was the main the main reason why I do what I do and I've turned it around. But those other experiences in my childhood certainly have created a story. You know, they have, they never leave you, I guess. And they're things that, that stay with you forever. So it's, it's been a whole list, you know, it's been my whole life that's led to this, but yes, certainly the significant turning point was the diagnosis. And it was just, having been so depressed and so sad and no hope really and just waking up one day and being like I can feel like this forever or I can use it as I can look at it as a learning Mm -hmm. as something that has happened to me for a reason and I believe that that reason is to help people yeah so that's yeah and you a big part of that is helping women and how they perceive their bodies and accepting their bodies, which prompted you to create non-airbrushed me. Can you talk us through what that's all about? Yeah. So having always been on the bigger side, curvy, and I have had times in my life where I've just focused so much on on weight and cellulite and that sort of thing, and then getting into the nursing and and supporting people that are very unwell, disabled every day, rely on people to support them and and carry them through life. And then having had moments in my life where I couldn't feel my legs, you know, so those huge turning points are like, well, why would I complain about cellulite on my legs when I can use my legs again? It is, it's such a superficial way of looking at your body. And there are a lot of 
there's still a lot of that in the media. Mm. You know, there's still a lot of, oh, don't, you know, embrace your cellulite and that sort of thing. For me, I just see non-airbrush me is it's a movement that has been created from a very real and raw platform and from my own life experiences. And truly it is just about women empowering women to appreciate the bodies that they live in and and have gratitude for the fact that they're healthy, that they're alive. You know, they may be going through stuff like everybody is, or they may, you know, experience these bouts of illness and things like that, but not to, to dwell on that, to just be grateful for the fact that they're alive and they're living a good life and that they've got legs that, that help them create memories and travel and things like that. So... And you spread that incredible message through the Instagram account yeah. mm. and you've got a website as well. It's now grown to have more than 200,000 followers, which mm. is incredible. Does that in some way, I guess, make you feel that what you're doing is really reaching people and resonating yeah. with people? And do you think there was a gap, mm. I guess, out there for this kind of mm. message? Yeah. So I started the Non-Airbrush Me movement five years ago. It was just around the time where I was like, I think I'd really come to that real realisation of of my diagnosis and looking at it in a positive way. And I remember the night I actually just put up a photo of myself in a bikini and the engagement that I got was just unbelievable. And I thought, well, hang on, there's something to this. And literally that night I created the Instagram account, non Rush Me. I didn't even really think about it, which is why I think anything that comes so naturally and is real is what is successful. And so it immediately got huge traction. It was the first movement, I guess, in Australia that was real and focused on positive body image and self-love. And, yeah, that's why I think that it's been so successful is because it happened at a time where this wasn't really being spoken about. It was sort of the first, the first movement. And then it's just continued on. And what kind of things do you put on there? So I wake up every day, honestly, to about like 50 messages yeah. from women, mainly women. We are, I have opened this up to, to be focusing on male body image as well, but mainly it has been a female oriented community. So just messages of thanks and gratitude for the fact that this movement has helped them see their bodies in a different way. All the images I post, just I repost from people that have used my hashtag or have just sent me direct messages. I'm very selective with what I put up because I, I'm mindful of the fact that a post I put up yesterday may not resonate with somebody that, you know, a post that I put up today will. So it's about covering all different topics that resonate and help people engage with. So, yeah. How does it feel when you have all those DMs and mm. of people saying how much it means to them and how it's made them yeah. rethink the way they look at themselves? It makes me realise why I've been through everything I've been through because I truly feel that I'm actually making a difference in the world and that's the most beautiful thing is truly that I feel that, you know, everybody wants to have a purpose in their life and feel like they're helping in some way with what they do and to finally be in that position of actually knowing that what I do does help people is a really amazing feeling to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And what do you hope that, you know, when people are scrolling through it, what, do you, what are the kind of feelings you're trying to evoke in them? I just want them to see that everybody is human, that 
that there's a lot of stuff on social media particularly that is quite edited is not real and it doesn't help people feel better about themselves so I just want people to jump on there and feel safe to speak up to talk you know to be real about themselves and support other women to do the same and just to help them feel better about themselves because they can relate to what they see. Why do you think that we have become so obsessed with the way we look and this Instagram thinspo, I don't know, fitspo mm. culture has become so prevalent in society? Because of social media. <laughs> which is which what is which is what I find ironic and in the most amazing way that then you're using social media yeah. to to buck that yeah. trend. Yeah, yeah. And people often say, oh, do you follow this person? Do you follow? And I'm like, oh, I don't actually, like, well, I'm very busy to start with. <laughs> but I literally jump on and I post my stuff and then I get off of it because I love the content that I'm promote that I'm promoting and the messages I wake up, up to every day is enough for me to feel great about myself. So, and I always say that to people, just make sure that if you're following people on social media, that you always feel good about what you're seeing. If, if you see something that makes you doubt yourself or makes you feel damaged or hurt or anything, you, you've got to unfollow it because, yeah. yeah. And I think that non-airbrush me is one of those probably unique pages where it is just truly raw. You know, nothing I post is edited. So it's, it's a safe space. And it's a safe movement to follow because I would like to hope that nobody is going to get on there and see any post that's going to make them feel bad about themselves. And through your work with Non-Airbrush Me, it inspires you to start your own clothing brand as well for women of all shapes and sizes. It's not just plus size, it's the size eight as well. Can you talk me through your brand and what's it, what it's all about? Yeah, so I started... Yeah, around the same time as I started non-airbrush me. Actually, actually, no, it was at the same time because I started Niata and people were confused whether it was a body positive movement or whether it was a fashion label. So that's when I separated the two out, but the two very much go hand in hand. So as I said, that turning point in my life was like, okay, this is, this has happened. And now I'm going to help women feel good about themselves and fashion for me, having always been a curvy girl in Australia, it's always limited options of, of fashion to help me feel beautiful and different and stand out, I guess. So I actually went over to Bali. I've got no fashion experience. You know, I've always been creative, but I didn't study fashion or anything. I went over there and I had some pieces made and came back and did a photo shoot just to see if people were interested or not, and they were. And it all just sort of happened from there. The reason why I do all sizes is because I feel like passionately that all women are entitled to the same fashion. I'd always struggled growing up, going into one store, things didn't fit me versus going into another store. I think we should all be entitled to go to one store and all be entitled to Instead the same Instead of segregated. Yeah. 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 And I think we we are getting there in Australia. I'm starting to see more brands extending their sizing and opening curve ranges and things like that. But there's a lot more that need to be doing it as well. Mm-hmm. So I, again, sort of identified that gap in the industry back then. And it's now nice to see other brands doing it too. But yeah, so that's sort of where it 
where it started. And so non-airbrush me is like the core of that because it's about helping women feel good about themselves. And then Niata is, it actually means real in Indonesian. So it's just about promoting realness I it's guess. like an extent it sounds like the perfect yeah. extension if yeah. you you know you're you're fostering a sense of confidence in yeah. women it's also like well now you know embrace that and here are beautiful clothes that's to right. make you feel as yeah. beautiful as you should feel yeah that's why i say nyada's the finishing touch to non-airbrush me yeah so it's a ho- it's a holistic thing absolutely yeah you've got no sizes there, yeah. There's no numbers. You can't go in and ask for a size 12 or a size 10. Mm. There's words instead like jaw dropping and beautiful, I think, is another one of them. Yeah. Why was it important to scrap sizing numbers and what kind of shift would you hope that that pushes the industry in doing something like that? Mm. Well, for me, I know I could go into a store today and I could try something on that fits me at a size 14 go into another store and an 18 doesn't fit me. So that then instantly makes me feel crap about myself, to be honest. So I think that it's just about looking at a label, looking at a nice word, whatever fit, you know, if you fit into a jaw dropper, great. If you fit into a stunning, great. doesn't mean anything. It's just, an, it's just a name. So it's not looking at a number particularly as can be very damaging to you. What kind of impact do you think that could have if the entire fashion industry followed that lead and there were no numbers <laughs> oh i think it'd be fabulous and it frustrates me sizing in australia everybody every i think there should be uni- universal sizing to start with yeah if we're going to do anything it needs to be universal it's very frustrating that different brands are different offer different sizes and things like yeah that. you so, can try things on and think oh god this is why there's one shop in particular which i won't name that i mm-hmm. i go into and i'm an eight to ten ten more and i don't fit into any of their clothes and i'm like i leave their feeling yeah horrendous yeah absolutely awful about myself that i have to yeah. chat and i think oh, i have to change something mm-hmm. and it's incredible that in this day and age, and I actually have read as well people saying in some Facebook threads that I'm in that they a lot of the time shops put size 12 out the back or 14, mm. the bigger sizes out the back, and you have to actually go and ask them for your size. Yeah. How does that make someone, how does that make you feel when you go in and you have to, you know, almost inconvenience a shop assistant to get you just try on your size? Well, the most frustrating thing for me is that because I am generally a size 16 and that actually is the average Australian size woman and I go into some of these very well-known stores and they've, well, to start with, immediately sell out of a size 16 but have openly told me that they will only stock three of them yet they've got, you know, so and it frustrates me because I'm like, well, it's it's known data here. Yeah. We're talking about the Australian size woman, average size is a 16. So stock more of that kind mm, of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're a model as well. We haven't yeah. discussed that mm. either. So you you know, you've got your page and then you've got your brand, but then you're also live you're also walking the walk as yeah. well that you're actually putting yourself and your body out there to show, I guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mm. people that there are all different shapes and sizes. Is it really important for you to, for young girls to see diversity in media? Absolutely. And again, me starting curve modelling with Bala Management happened around the same time as Niata and Nam because it all goes hand in hand. So it's about 
having the opportunity to be a model, but not a model, but a role model to for people to open a magazine and see me in it in a bikini and be like, oh, that's actually what I look like, mm-hmm. you know. So, again, it's just it's another avenue of me being able to support women, to identify with what they're seeing in the media, to normalise it, to relate to it and not to open a magazine and not feel good about themselves. Yeah. And how do you want women to feel when they are wearing your clothes? I want them to feel so my label is very much focused on big, bold, colourful prints. And the reason, and sequins, of course. So the reason for that is to support women to get outside, you know, the box of wearing black. It's an easy thing to do and to hide away in black. Mm -hmm. So it's about empowering women to make a statement and to be noticed and to wear something unique. All of my collections are quite small runs. So it, again, is another way of empowering women to be wearing something that they're not going to see down the street, Mm -hmm. that it's unique. And, again, it's just about supporting them to get out, to be bold and bright and colourful and vibrant and splash around and turn heads. What advice would you have for young women or even women that are our age that are struggling to accept themselves or hating their thighs or hating their stomach or wishing their arms were thinner or if only their nose was smaller any you know we can pick as women we can find a million things wrong with us what would you tell them well if we were all the same the world would be very boring wouldn't it so everybody has something amazing to offer the universe we're all born different for a reason we all have we're all beautiful in our own ways and as women it's important to to not tear each other down to start with, to compliment. Complimenting other people is always something that makes you feel good about yourself. That's an easy thing to do. Every day I try, you know, I'll walk down the street, I'll be like, you look gorgeous in that dress. And then seeing how that makes that person feel and then how that then makes me feel is is an amazing thing. And just waking up, looking at yourself in the mirror every day and complimenting yourself or or saying something that you've you've done that day that you were proud of and saying that to yourself in the mirror, writing it down in a journal, you know, posting it. I've, I've had a lot of post-it notes around my house recently of things that I've been thankful for of myself that I've done or who I am. So those constant reminders and very important in, in terms of who you surround yourself with and, yeah, and you've also, with your experience with living with MS and your work with people whose lives have literally been torn apart by mm. what they've experienced out on the roads and losing control of their legs or yeah. back or, or, or whatever, what is the main, I guess, thing that you could take away from that experience and hand to someone that is complaining about, as you said, the cellulite on their legs? Yeah. Well, I think... Again, what I see and experience every day with what I support people and what they're going through, as hard as it is to do that, it's every day a reminder of how lucky I am. And also just having that gratitude for your body every day, looking at yourself in the mirror and having gratitude for something that you've done that day that that made you feel good about yourself, that you were proud of, journaling that putting sticky notes around your house, whatever it is. Yeah. Complimenting people is 
is something that is it's an easy way of obviously helping other people to feel good about themselves but also an easy way of making you feel good about yourself and yeah I truly believe like everybody is beautiful and unique in their own way we all have something that stands out and just looking at those parts of you that things that you love focusing on that and yeah just appreciating that and also not being hard on yourself like there's you know, I sit here and I preach about body image and self-love and, and that I love my body and I do, I very much do, but it doesn't mean to say that there's some times where I'm like, I don't feel that flash. Yeah. You know, I do look at myself in the mirror. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not feeling myself today, but anyway, I'll get on with my day anyway. Yeah. So, You're not letting it destroy you and no. sideline you in bed just because you're, yeah, having a bloated day or something. That's right. Yep. And that's the reality, especially as women, we have, bloating issues we deal with all that rubbish breakouts on our skin yeah that's right and our hair just doesn't sit quite right and yeah and so it's not about being happy and positive all the time because that's just not achievable (laughs) it's about being real about it and if the days that you feel better about yourself outweigh the, the days that you feel not so good about yourself that's the most important thing it's not about feeling great about yourself every single 100% day. 100% of the time, yeah. Because that's not that's not reality. So, And you are so open and vulnerable with your chat about your life and your experience and your journey to accepting yourself and, and self-love. What do you hope women out there get out of your entire story and your plat- non-airbrush me and your clothing brand? What, what do you hope people get out of the entire story? thing simply that they feel it's an opportunity to for them to feel better about themselves like I love nothing more than getting a photo of one of my customers wearing one of my dresses saying how amazing they looked I recently Chrissy Swan recently wore one of my designs standing next to Sarah Jessica Parker oh my gosh how did that feel amazing yeah and Chrissy was just like she's like I felt so amazing standing next to an icon you know and she looked incredible like she just looked amazing in this dress and I just was like that just sums up everything that I do is is just about helping women feel beautiful in in the skin that they're in I love to finish with this question with all my guests because I think get some real insight and what would the amber sitting here now is saying all these incredible inspiring beautiful things tell the amber in her worst darkest most difficult moments where you thought that you know you were going to shift to that house in tasmania with wheelchair access Mm. and that was going to be your life Mm. it would be to feel the moment to not band-aid emotions you have to feel the hard stuff And as hard as it is, you have to ride that wave and you need to feel that, but then you also need to have the strength to overcome that. And whatever that is for you, you have to do it. So everybody has different ways of getting through things. Everybody has different ways of healing. It's about getting in touch with yourself, even having time, just space on your own to just completely focus on you to be able to move forward and overcome those feelings and emotions is is what's important. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been such a beautiful 
incredible chat and I've got so much out of it. And, thank um, you. I think other people will too. So I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Lovely. It's been lovely. <laughs> Great. Chat soon. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening to my chat with Amber. If you'd like to connect with her on Instagram, you can do so at Amber Dawn Model. And while you're at it, check out at me. You can also connect with me at my new handle, at Elizabeth O'Neill, which is spelled A-N-I-L-E. I hope you've all had an awesome start to 2020. I have a really good feeling this is going to be one of the best years yet, and I can't wait to bring you all of the amazing guests I have in store. As always, if you're loving these chats, please hit subscribe. And if you'd be so kind to leave a review and hit five stars, I'd be most appreciative. Until next time, see you guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.